All right, the title of my message this morning is How to Kill Your Inner Judge. How to Kill Your Inner Judge. Anybody here have a problem with judging others? Raise your hand. Great. If there's already that kind of humility, that's awesome. And I'm just judging the other 25% of you that think you've got this figured out. So uh, I think this is just an important message for where we're at as a church. Uh, I think there were two significant changes in my Christian life that changed my whole perspective on the whole deal. One was understanding, I, I, was, I was trained in this basic concept that you were saved by grace, but you were sanctified by works. In other words, God gave you free salvation, but then you basically had to perform to get God to like you. It wasn't until I read Jerry Bridges' book, Transforming Grace, where it said, he said, there's nothing you can do to get God to love you more, and there's nothing you can do to get God to love you less. I wrestled with that forever. I was like, do I really believe that? That I am saved by grace, and I grow by grace. It's not by my performance or by my effort. That really changed things for me. Accompanying that whole philosophy is, if I must perform to get Jesus to like me, then I want to make sure that I perform the best. And I was raised in a denomination, like many of you here probably were raised in denominations, and they all had their list of things that you did to get God to like you, right? And automatically told you that the rest of the Christian faith that didn't believe like they believed, those people uh, were disobedient or they were sinners, right? And it extends to everything. Uh, it is what you eat. You know, people will say the Daniel diet is more godly than Big Macs and fries, right? And so this is, what's, this is what really godly people do. What you drink, you know, whether you drink alcohol or not. Whether you smoke. Some of you might say, I can't imagine a Christian ever smoking. Just go to Baptist churches in the South. All the deacons are out back smoking, and that's a Southern Baptist conservative church, right? Clothing. How, how long the hemline is. Uh, how tight the clothing is. Uh, 50 years ago, pretty much was universal. Nobody, no women ever wore pants to a service on Sunday morning. Tattoos. How many were raised that tattoos were bad? Raise your hand. And they had Bible verses too, right? Don't make a marking in the flesh there in Leviticus. Or the length of your hair, men. Ray Stevens is a song. If you got hair on your ears, you got sin in your heart, right? Uh, I was raised in that denomination. How you handle holidays, Halloween, Christmas, Christmas trees, Easter eggs. Is that pagan or was that the sign of new life? Entertainment, what movies you watch, whether or not you went to the theater, how you spent your money, how you educated your kids, homeschool, private school, public school. Then, then my wife and we had kids and I realized there's this whole mommy war over demand feeding versus scheduled feeding. And if you demand fed your kid, you didn't really love them. And, and just divisions in the church. Like it was like, are you part of that group of moms or are you part of the other group? I won't even get into like sex and people's beliefs about that or even dating and courtship. You ever heard the word courtship? That you, you really shouldn't date. It's almost like a Christian arranged marriage. Politics. You can't be a Christian if you vote, you know, Republican or Democrat. We've seen it recently explode with COVID, whether we gather online or in person. Uh, 
We've seen it even infiltrate churches on uh, with the George Floyd of the last two years. Do you back the blue or do black lives matter? I have been raised and I have heard a lot of this stuff. I mean, I was on just on church music. I was I was sitting there thinking as I'm watching the group saying how much my denomination would think that what took place on this platform today was not pleasing to God. Because they taught us that music, first of all, you never held a mic. That was making love to the microphone. Don't think too much about it, okay? Uh, that, that really was what we were taught, right? And you had to stay on the note. You couldn't scoop or slide the note. You say, what the heck do you mean? I mean, it's like, amazing grace. But if you went, Amazing. That's sin right there, right? See that, that little scoop? You laughed. That was really taught, okay? We would never have this stuff here, right? That was heathen. Um, in fact, when we first came to plant Providence, I was 33 years old, and we had a youth event at Sunny Lawson Park on 24th in California. We had a rap artist come in, and I had to go report back to my home church to the entire deacon board why we had a rap artist at a youth group event and they threatened to yank our $250 a month support over that. I sat on plane with Nazarenes who've been taught that you can only wear long sleeves, men and women. Or if you're part of the Charismatics and Pentecostals, that if you're really a good Christian, you better speak in tongues or you really don't have it. Or if we go into the- theology, what you believe about election, is it unconditional election, is it conditional election, is it corporate election, creation, If you don't believe in a six-day literal creation, everything else is bad from there, from there on. Or the end times. Are you pre-mill, post-mill, ah-mill, pre-trib, no-trib, you know, all that kind of stuff. Churches, denominations form around these issues. Women in leadership, what can women do and not do? Church government, are you elder-led, congregationally ruled? Are you anti-denomination, non-denomination? And then you just think of a culture. Here we have a church where we have, we must have 20 different cultures represented today alone. How all cultures bring stuff to bear and enculturate their gospel. I remember when we rented from the Central Baptist Church, the second oldest African American church in Denver. We rented from them. And uh, I went to Pastor Simmons and we were going to do a joint service. And I had attended several of the services. And I said, hey, I said, I think there's two things that would really help our families if they attended your church. One would be, if you had a nursery, that would be great. Uh, and, uh, but I said, secondly, I said, when you do the offering, I said, you know, the way I've been raised is you just, you don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. So they pass the offering plate and you silently slip the check in the offering plate and you don't show anybody what the amount is, right? Because you're not going to brag that you're a giver. Well, in the black church, I mean, at offering time, they dismiss you by a row and you come down front and the basket's right there and the pastor watches you put it in the basket. And I said, I just don't think the people in Providence are going to enjoy that very much. Uh, and I said, because the Bible says, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. And I think that kind of violates that. He says, Jason, Jason, Jason. How did Jesus know that the widow, widow was putting her two mites into that basket if, she, if he wasn't watching her? You got to watch everything, Jason, you know? And I, and I just realized, like, wow, how hard it would be to bring cultures together into one body. I give that just to say that what we're talking about is a 2,000-year-old passage of Scripture, 
and it applies today to churches. I would encourage you to make Romans 14 something you read regularly over the next month because I can't even give you all the principles or answer all the questions that this chapter uh, gives us, but it's really vital, I think, in the next season of the church that we grab onto it. Because the church at Rome, in this context, was made up of diverse people. Fundamentally, there were two main groups. There were the, the Jewish uh, people who had grown up in the strict discipline of Judaism. They, were, uh, they, they believed they should follow the Old Testament laws, all 613 of them. Uh, there was clean and unclean and ceremonial laws. But then you also had these Gentiles who had come from pagan backgrounds and religious festivals with drunkenness and immorality, the worshiping of idols. And so you had those two groups coming into the church together, and both of them were bringing their thoughts and beliefs about how their faith should be practiced there in the church. The Jews were saying, you Gentiles need to act like us, and there's parts of the Old Testament law that you need to obey just like we do. And there were Gentiles saying, I can't believe you guys are eating meat offered to idols because we went to those pagan festivals, and you should not be eating that meat that's being offered to idols. And it threatened unity. Unity is important to God. And as a church... I would say something I've come to believe a lot over the last 26 years of pastoring, more and more is there's a, there is such an importance to unity in the body over our preferences. So I want to give you this morning some principles to guide us in our walk with one another. And the first one is this, accept your brothers and sisters with diverse beliefs over doubtful issues. If you were to write anything down and say, Jesus, help that permeate my heart, it would be that statement right there. These are doubtful and disputable things. This is not talking about, in verse 1, when he's saying disputable matters, he's not talking about your doctrine of Jesus, your doctrine of the Bible, the doctrine of God. He's talking about doubtful things and disputable matters, many of which I mentioned here at the beginning of my message. The, there are several examples given in the passage. In verse 2, you'll see it's the idea of eating, uh, especially eating meat, where it says this, one person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. This is Josh Larson's favorite passage of scripture right here, that uh, I don't have to eat only vegetables, okay? So uh, you also have celebrating certain days in verse five. One person considers one day more sacred than another. There are entire denominations that gather on Saturday instead of Sunday because they think that's the right thing to do. And there are people who meet on Sunday that said those people are wrong who meet on Saturday. There are people who believe differently about different days. In verse uh, 15, uh, you'll, you, they, they talk again about what you eat. Uh, and in verse 21, it says, it's better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else will cause your brother or sister to fall. So it's also what you drink. So these are doubtful things. And we are to accept our brothers and sisters with diverse beliefs over doubtful issues. Uh, I like this quote, unless the church can find a clear warrant from Scripture for a particular teaching or practice, it may not speak, it should say, or act. Otherwise, it runs the risk of binding the conscience of believers and usurping the lordship of Christ. There are churches everywhere where the pastor will impose their personal beliefs on the congregation and it's, 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 it's ministerial malpractice because it binds the conscience of the congregants. They will tell you who to vote for and judge everyone who doesn't believe like they do. We will never do that at Providence. We never will, okay? Uh, we are not going to enter into doubtful matters 
and make that the sine qua non of what it means to be a providence person. So this is the doctrine of Christian liberty. Uh, we, we believe in the liberty of the believer to exercise their faith according to how the Spirit of God leads them. So accept your brothers and sisters, and here's some ways to help. You first of all have to understand the difference between the weak and the strong believer. And I had this confused for the first 30 years of my Christian life. Who is the weak and who is the strong in this passage? Well, it tells us in verse number two, the person whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Okay? Uh, the weak are those who cannot participate in areas of liberty because their conscience won't allow them to. And the passage here really is careful and says, don't violate your conscience um, because there's different ways people uh, are interpreting how these doubtful things should be handled. A weak person could be somebody who is just simply mistaught. They have been taught through their denomination, through their church background, through their favorite radio preacher, this is the list of what you got to do to be a good Christian, where there's no explicit command in Scripture around it. They've been mistaught. Or secondly, their history disallows them from practicing the liberty. This would especially apply to like the use of alcohol. If somebody has a weakness for alcohol and they can't even be around it, right, uh, or they could fall back into alcoholism, right, that's a weak brother, uh, because, and they should not engage in the use of alcohol. There are other people who alcohol would not bother them. They would never have the temptation to become dr uh, drunk, uh, but their history disallows them. So then third would be an overly sensitive conscience. Like, they're just, people are wired to stay as far away from sin as possible, and so they're going to set up all these additional rules. Like, these are the people who can't say darn, right, or dang it because it's like Christian slang curse words, kind of, you know. Uh, this would be somebody whose their, their conscience is so sensitive about those things. I used to think the weak person was the one who engaged in liberty. The weak person is really the one who, who is, does not have a good concept of Christian liberty, who thinks everybody else is, is uh, into licentiousness and evil doing because they don't meet their list of what a good Christian is. Who are the strong? The strong are those who are accepting of those who hold varying opinions, okay? They understand, appreciate, and enjoy the liberties God has given with a clear conscience. These are the strong. Here's the idea. The stronger you get as a believer, the more grace you have for yourself and for other people in how they practice their Christian life. And we have all been in churches where the weak person is walking around as the little behavior police telling everybody what they should and should not do. And some churches are ruled by them and some churches are pastored by them. And this is damning to unity in the body. How are the weak and the strong to act? The Bible says you who are strong are to be welcoming of those with a sensitive conscience. So you as a weak person, you can't judge the strong. And you as a strong person who engage in liberty, you better not judge the weak. You really don't know why they're weak. People who partake of liberties are not to reject those who are sensitive, and people who are sensitive are not to separate from people who partake of their liberties. So we need to kill our inner judge, whether you're weak or you're strong. For us to be unified across race and class and generation and theology, it's going to be really important we grab that. So what are some beliefs in this passage that I think you need to grab onto to, to help kill this inner judge? 
First of all, realize this. God has accepted the weak and the strong. And you then should too. Verse 3 says, uh, the one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. So leave it be. And then secondly, God's going to take care of the judging. God will judge both. They are going to rise or stand in front of God. Verse 10, why do you judge your brother and sister? Why do you treat them with contempt? We're all going to stand before God's judgment seat. As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. Each one of us will give an account of ourselves to God. So I'm just going to relieve you. Nobody has to judge. You don't have to do that. You don't have to pick it up. You don't have to worry about that. You don't have to have that ministry of the Spirit to judge your fellow believers and brothers and sisters. Those are beliefs I think you need to anchor into your heart. And then secondly, there's some actions. Actions you can do. First of all, Give your brother and sister the benefit of the doubt. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Verse 6 says, Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord. For they give thanks to God, and whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. If you have a Christmas tree and you do it to the Lord, God bless you. If you think Christmas trees are idolatrous and you don't want to do that in your, in your living room, God bless you. You're doing it to the Lord. Like, hallelujah, right? But don't go around telling everybody whether they should have a Christmas tree or not. Or whether Easter eggs are pagan. And uh, to do that is to honor the Greek god of whatever, right? I mean, I get articles every year from people that found something on the internet that says something we're doing is pagan, you know? This is the weaker brother trying to exercise power in the church. So give the benefit of the doubt. And then secondly, be fully convinced in your own mind. You actually have to get down and study what's right for you and what's wrong for you. You have to decide what's healthy for you and what's not healthy for you. And you ought to come down and say, there are some doubtful things that maybe for you are sin. And so you shouldn't engage in those things. But be convinced in your own mind and be gracious toward those who believe differently. Verse 5, be convinced, fully convinced in your mind. Let me jump a little bit into theology here. I want to encourage us to engage in what I would call theological humility. Especially if you come from one stream of the Christian faith. So, for instance, you might uh, have been taught that tattoos are wrong because Leviticus says don't mark the flesh. So you bring that verse to the pastor and say, nobody in this church ought to have tattoos, and I am the tattoo police, right? Right? Well, I'm going to simply ask you, uh, have you read the other 612 laws in the Old Testament that you should also obey, i.e. not wearing polyester, right? I.e. not eating any pork, right? And I can just walk through and completely dismantle that argument. You cannot cherry pick out of Old Testament law what you should do. What is that? That's theological ignorance, not understanding the development and theological flow of Scripture, if you actually want to come down to say, thus saith the Lord, then do your work. Do your theological work. And just to scare you off or to invite you into deeper study of theology, which I love to do, how do you go about a theological method? First of all, I would say you engage in historical theology. How has the church viewed this over the last 2,000 years? So before you come and launch your opinions, have you done your work? 
Do we have any tattoos in 300 AD? Uh, what was, how was the Easter egg and Easter handled uh, in ancient times? My son is transitioning to another stream of the Christian church called orthodoxy. And I've been walking with on this journey uh, because he has come to some deep convictions about the, the narrative of our faith and, and where he should be. And he, he told me one day, he said, Dad, I'm, I'm really considering becoming orthodox, and I want to tell you that. I hope you're not disappointed. And I said, you know, do you love God and love your neighbor? That's my concern. And he goes, I, I'm not straying from Christ at all, you know. He goes, but I think I may want to be a monk. And I was like, what? No, 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 what's that? I want grandbabies, you know, like... Uh, <laughs> I said, well, then we ought to go visit a monastery and see if this is where we're going to be spending our Christmases, you know. So this January, we went down to a monastery for a couple days, and, and I started engaging with Orthodox Christians, which I've never done in my life. Never been to an Orthodox church service ever. And I realized that this stream of the Christian faith, which predates any uh, of us in this room, they have different views of a lot of things. The use of icons. They venerate icons. You know, Luther walked in at the Reformation and threw all the icons out of the church and said, we're starting from a clean slate. You know, so I've always been anti-icon. There's no, like, images in here that we reverence or pray to. The Orthodox Church is not that way. Their view of Mary is totally different than the evangelical view of Mary. And I've been, I was jolted by these conversations I was having with my son, and, when they, and they, they started uh, coming at me about my beliefs, and I realized, wow, I've only been taught one stream along Mary. I've been told all that Mary, who Mary is not. They've spent thousands of years thinking about who Mary is. So I am probably not as dogmatic as I was six months ago on these issues. That's historical theology. Then you go into biblical theology. Biblical theology understands there's a progression of theology from Genesis chapter 1 all the way through Revelation, and that Old Testament law, that's the Old Covenant, and the New Testament, that has the New Covenant. So what part of the Old Covenant pertains into the New Covenant, and how does that all work? This is why I can eat pork, because I have a good biblical theology. I'm not bound to the Old Testament law. This is why I can wear polyester with no conscience problems at all. <laughs> then you engage in systematic theology. Does my view of Scripture hold up across the whole breadth of Scripture? Is there really a systematic case to be made for the stand that I'm taking? And then there's apologetic theology. Have I read the people who disagree with my view, and I understand why I hold mine? I mean, I had one view of the Lord's table for the first 35 years. And then you, there's these little books that came out in seminary called the Four Views books. The question is, is the Lord's table just a memorial view? Or is there transubstantiation? Do the elements actually become the body and blood of Jesus? Or are you like Luther who says, it doesn't really become the body and blood of Jesus in the Eucharist, but there is a real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. Does grace actually get administered to the taking of the elements? Or is there no grace involved? Those are all different theological perspectives. And by the way, they all have Bible verses to back up why they believe that. So I sit back and go, you know what? I believe this view. I actually come down to a Lutheran view myself through that study that I did. But I'm not going to judge people who have necessarily other views of that. Also then examine your personal history. 
have enough theological humility to know that you were educated and brought up in a tradition that believed a certain way, and they may not have done you the justice of showing you the other views and, and done it from a standpoint where the people with other views will say, yep, he re- represented us correctly. You know, somebody said to me, the reason you go to seminary is because 80% of your theology is probably correct and 20% is probably really jacked up. And you go to seminary to find out which 20% is jacked up. And then I realized my seminary was jacked up, right? So, like, that doesn't even help me. That makes me think that once I've got the degree, I've got it all figured out. There is a theological growth that happens in your life. So I give you that little kind of historical theological method to say, if you're going to come down solid, I'm going to say, have you done your work? And if you haven't done your work, then back away a little bit from the dogmatic stance and realize that the, 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 the stream is a lot larger than you thought. I don't know if you can see this cartoon, but I love it. This is a new members class, and it shows a chart of all the churches and Christian movements throughout history. And uh, the teacher is saying, this is where our movement came along and finally got the Bible right. And the church member is saying, Jesus is so lucky to have us, right? Can you realize you were born into a stream? And here's what's really helpful when you come down to your beliefs. This is what I believe, but I may be wrong. I just say that all the time now. This is what I believe, but I may be wrong. And I can guarantee you this, God is more broad than you think. Jesus uh, was asked 183 questions while he was on earth, and he answered less than 10 of them. And he asked 307 questions, right? So maybe the journey is not always coming down to the absolute position on everything, but really to try curiosity and really see what Jesus was driving at. So then uh, third is guard your conscience. Guard your conscience. Um, You have to do the discipline to realize you don't want to violate your conscience or sear it. Uh, and you want to do that good work, and then stop passing judgment. You have enough stuff to worry about in your life without, ha- without having to have the judging ministry of the church. Bonhoeffer said this, judging others makes us blind, whereas love is illuminating. By judging others, we blind ourselves to our own evil and to the grace which others are just as entitled to as we are. I like what Mother Teresa said, if you, are, if you judge people, you have no time to love them. The moment you think another person in the church isn't upholding your list of rules and you view them with suspicion, you're probably not praying for them in the right way, right? You're praying they get converted to your view versus really loving them for where they're at. (coughs) I have permission to share this, but I was riding in the car this week with my wife coming back from our community group, and I said, hey, I'm, I'm talking about liberty on Sunday, and I would like to bring up a personal example with you and I around the watching of R rated movies because we differ on that. And she says, yeah, no problem. You have my full permission. I said, great, thank you. I'm trying to show the difference of doubtful things on whether it's right or wrong to watch R-rated movies. And uh, I think it's okay, and she doesn't think it's okay. And she paused a little bit, and she said, yeah, go ahead and preach it, but just so you know, I'm right. (laughs) You know? And I was like, excuse me? And she's like, yeah, the Bible says there should be no wicked thing in front of your eyes, you know? And uh, that's what I believe. And I was like, man, I can't wait to preach to you on Sunday. 
Uh, and then she didn't make it this morning, so I'm going to have to listen to it carefully, right? Um, but due to her background and where she comes from, she draws a hard line at R-rated. And there's a lot of good reasons why she will not watch an R-rated movie. I like watching Liam Neeson take out jerks in full violence. I like that. Yeah, reveals with me, right? I can do that and not sin. I can actually celebrate that. That's a doubtful thing, folks. That's a doubtful thing. And so we can stop passing judgment on one another and accept one another. And then last, love by not creating a stumbling block. Verse 13 and 14 says, let's stop passing judgment on one another. Make up your mind not to put a stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, that is unclean. You realize what he's saying there? Nothing is unclean, especially as it relates to eating and drinking. Nothing is unclean. But you have to then walk down that road, especially if you're a strong brother or sister. You have liberty to engage in a lot of things without violating your conscience or sinning. Then it says here, whatever you do, don't cause a stumbling block for your weak brother and sister. And by the way, there's two ways of viewing the stumbling block. The way I was raised is, if somebody in the church didn't like the fact that you were engaging in something, they would walk up and tell you, I'm offended by you doing that. They wanted you to stop. That's not what the verse is talking about. It is saying you engage in liberty and you actually cause that person to fall into sin themselves. Perfect example. And I think it applies to this congregation. Obviously, in this passage, I think one of the, 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 the past, this passage convinced me that the church um, should be able, you should be able to consume alcohol and not get drunk. And that's, <laughs> Sherry's amen to me. And that, that's, that's biblical, right? And by the way, both sides bring their proof texts out. When you look at the whole scope of scripture, this passage convinced me we should not divide over the drinking of wine. It's a doubtful thing. Now, there are people in our congregation who, who, who have struggled with alcoholism, have been through treatment, right? And they can't even be around it. The smell of it, the look of it, or the environment of it. It is incumbent upon the strong brothers and sisters to not mock them. But actually, before you crank it out, you better check and make sure no one's going to stumble. And if they're going to stumble and say, you know what, I, I, I can't be around it, then you put the beer away. Right? That's the idea. You don't want to do anything to cause them to stumble. And where I hear a lot of strong people saying, boy, I wish those weak people would just get it together. I'm like, I haven't seen a lot of strong people exercise that kind of caution before they spread it out for people to not engage, okay? So be, be thoughtful, brothers and sisters, about the exercise of your liberty to not cause your brother or sister to fall into sin, violate their conscience, cause them to relapse. So the strong are to forego the exercise of their liberty in the presence of the weak. Those with a clear conscience have to be careful to protect those with a sensitive conscience, Luther said, a Christian person is the most free person of all and subject to none. But the Christian person is also the most dutiful servant of all and subject to everyone. Amen. Right? I want to make sure that whatever I do, I don't cause someone to fall into sin. I do not try to convince my wife to go with me to an R-rated movie. 
It would be wrong for me to do that. It would violate her conscience. And by the way, I love the fact that she holds the line in a certain place for her to, to be able to live her Christian life out the way she wants. So how do I, I close today with this? Verse 17, he wraps it up and says this, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. This is the main thing. Righteousness, that Greek word means justice. What is the main thing? That we as a congregation are to do justice in our world and to be a peacemaker. He says in verse 19, make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification and do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. Weak brothers and sisters, do not destroy what God is trying to do in a congregation through your weak conscience. You are destroying the work of God by doing that. You are causing division. And then be a bringer of joy. You can't have judging and joy in the same congregation. So we ought to be, say, what are we doing to bring people together? Do not destroy the work of God. Why? He says, these are the people for whom Christ died. Christ went to the cross with an all-inclusive invitation to, for everybody to come and to be part of his family. And I want to say, I actually think this church, I think you are a strong church. I don't see a ton of this happening in our congregation. The test was COVID. Churches were ripped apart across this country and are still suffering because divisions were made around the use of masks or not the use of masks or gathering online or in person or whether or not you're going to take the vaccine or not. Literally, Christians divided families and churches over those issues. Those are all doubtful things. Those are all doubtful things. And if you divide it over it, like you're, that's, you're, it's a sign you're a weak believer. Whether or not you use a vaccine has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. In fact, all I want to do is make sure that I'm loving my brothers and sisters all the way through that. And you know what? This church did not split or divide or have big debates about it. So I thank you for that. Why am I preaching this now? Because I think it's really important that we're at a crucial time in our church. We are looking for a new lead pastor. When you all filled out the surveys of who you wanted, the bad news is, is the survey came back and said you want Jesus Christ, okay? Um, and last time I checked, he's not available, okay? So we're going to bring some candidates in here, and you're going to want to know if they hold your pet beliefs. It's going to be hard to take a congregation as diverse as us and agree upon one person. And you're going to have to go through this in your head and say, part of being part of a really diverse church is you put a lot of things down into the second and third tier, what's important to you. I mean, you know, there was a song this morning that was sung in Swahili that I didn't know, but I worshiped in that song because it was so beautiful. And the tech team loved us by translating into English. So I could sit there and just listen to the sound, right? And, and say, this, this is a different way to worship, and I've, I've grown to enjoy it. So I don't have to have every single song be my favorite. You can't have every single little pet belief about how things should be done and us have this new lead pastor have any shot in this church. We have to clean some stuff up in this church. We, we, when we planted 15 years ago, we just copied and pasted a constitution from a non-denominational reformed Baptist church. 
and we haven't really changed it since. Here's the problem. None of the founding team anymore is Reformed or Baptist. Nor are we totally against being part of a denomination. Like, all those things that were important 15 years ago aren't important. We have to change the Constitution. The Constitution, in my opinion, is too narrow uh, to, to, for us to create a pathway for our new leader. In a strong church, we've learned we have to have theological diversity with tremendous unity. Juan spoke last week on this change we're making around baptism, right? I believe some of the things we talked about in baptism are doubtful things. Is baptism important? Yes. Is it a conversation we need to have? Yes. But we actually believe there needs to be unity around these things. I think thirdly, culture is rapidly changing. It is going to be very important for the church to focus on the main thing and not make a big deal out of a lot of other things. Because the church is going to continue to be on its heels here, I think, for the next 10, 20 years in culture, right, in a way that it hasn't before. And, and we, we ought to be as broad as the kingdom of God in how we view all of these things. I close with this. Behind us is this cross. And uh, I love this because when we were getting ready to open this building, I was looking for a multi-ethnic, multicultural cross, and uh, first time in my life I went on the Pinterest. Uh, but I was like, there ain't a lot of examples of this because this is not a value in America by and large. Uh, and I saw one that was made out of stone. And then the idea of fabric came when I saw this one uh, image. And I went to Christy Lanzen, who I knew as a seamstress. And I said, hey, could we do this? And then the idea came, what if everybody brought a piece of cloth from their cultural background and we made one piece, one unified piece uh, with this value we call the relational weave. And Christy actually took that and took all the pieces of fabric and made one unified piece of fabric. And to me, it ought to be a testimony to us every time we walk in here and say, that's the big deal. And I'm not going to be any part of ripping the stitching between various parts of that tapestry. I actually want to be a part of being part of a team that marches forward doing justice, making peace, and, and creating joy within the congregation because that is what Christ died for. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, give us the grace to obey the text uh, that has been laid in front of us. Lord, give us the, the acknowledgement in our own heart, Lord, of our own inner judge, and Lord, may it be slain this morning. May the word just slay it. Lord, give us a perspective to be accepting, welcoming, uh, and, and to unite. Lord, that the strong would help the weak, and the weak would help put the brakes on the strong, and that there would be this uh, joint love that happens as a result as we try to pursue this messy thing uh, around our faith and making this journey together. Lord, you have preserved providence over 15 years from having any splits or radical divisions. Guide us, Lord, over the next 12 months as we make significant decisions here in our church. May we be unified around the sake of the gospel. We ask this in your name. Amen. Let's stand together. We will sing a closing song. If you'd like prayer, the prayer team will be here and uh, pray with you as the Lord uh, lays anything on your heart.